to welcome once again to Father Spitzer's universe at the intersection where faith and reason meet and very much are complementary. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here where it all began in Irondale, Alabama, 1981, thanks to our own foundress, Mother Angelica. Thanks to her. Keep her in your prayers. Email your questions to Spitzer's Universe at EWTN.com. Of course, check out all the Father Spitzer's websites. There's the MagisCenter.com, PurposefulUniverse.com, and SpitzerCenter.org. And Father Spitzer's Universe, as we always say, is always available on our YouTube channel and EWTN On Demand page. You can also look for the audio on our Podcast Central page as well. Recently, we uploaded a wonderful program, a series called Knowing Mary Through the Bible with our good friend Dr. Ed Shree. And it shows Mary's the first and preeminent disciple of Christ who hears the Word of God and keeps it in her heart. Let's hope that we can model ourselves after Our Lady. It's available 24-7 a day, seven days a week, 24 hours. It's totally free. Check it out. If you can't get to On Demand, check out our YouTube channel as well. Our topic continues, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. It's available now, that book, through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, All Things Catholic. And our popular book of the month from EWTN, publishing a blue-collar answer to Protestantism. Catholic questions Protestants can't answer by our own John Martinoni. And speaking of our own, we have our own Father Robert Spitzer once more joining us from Orange and the beautiful studios out there of EWTN. And if you welcome us with a prayer, that'd be great, Father. You bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry, our ability to serve in it, we ask you, Lord, to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole uh, staff, and all of our audience members, so that everything we do, say, and hear will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Amen. for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Very good. Father, hope all things are well. A uh, couple of articles we'll get into before we get into the questions and then the topic. Sure. Uh, an article that showed up in the register, a decision between a woman and her abortion bot. Meet Chatbot Charlie. Okay, it's interesting that it's Charlie considering the the, 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 the connection there to uh, Ouija boards and things like that, but uh, yeah. let's say, isn't that yeah. funny? Well, meet the abortion. It's called Chatbot yeah. Charlie, okay? Abortion advocates recently yeah. launched this abortion chatbot, chatbot Charlie, offering automated answers that can direct women to get an abortion by mail without ever talking to another person. A conversation, quote unquote, with the chatbot sends women to abortion pill websites, even if they are beyond the gestational age at which the U.S. FDA recommends them being safely used. And they also go out to warn people that pro-life pregnancy centers that offer that claim to offer alternatives to abortions are fake clinics designed to prevent pregnant people from getting the abortion care they're really looking for. They talk about the bot being a user-friendly, judgment-free, of course, and confidential tool designed yeah. by abortion <laughs> experts for abortion seekers. And the majority of the team behind the chatbot tool are former employees of who do you think they might be? Former employees of? Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. There you go. Oh, of course. And right. <laughs> uh, 
And they, they talk about this, at least the people who are critical, say the bot begins by asking the user whether she is more interested in an abortion procedure or abortion pills. It does not ask the age of the user. It does not ask how far along yeah. you might be. The, and the bot doesn't warn about yeah. the complications. And uh, Dr. Francis, Christina Francis, CEO of the American Associate of Pro-Life Obstetrician and Gynecologist said that in directing women's uh, toward abortion pill providers, the bot endangers their health and safety because telehealth providers cannot adequately screen for human trafficking, intimate partner violence, medical risk factors for complications, including life-threatening ones that, such as an ectopic uh, rupture from that kind of thing. And also, as she goes on to point out, that again, it targets uh, you know, pro-life pregnancy centers as places to be avoided. So welcome to the new world. Right. Well, Dr. Francis has said it all, mm -hmm. uh, and she's she's truly a, a, a terrific physician. And uh, of course, uh, Applog is a great organization, and uh, I would very much listen to uh, exactly what she's saying. It's you know the old logical principle mm -hmm. uh, that we get back to again and again. It's not so much errors of commission, but errors of omission, mm -hmm. which are the ones easily overlooked and have such a devastating effect, right? When people don't tell you all the facts, mm -hmm. when they l literally leave out the most essential right. facts and uh, basically sell a thing uh, with only partial disclosures, that's where you get the real devastating effects, not just in uh, logic, but mm -hmm. of course in ethics and politics and culture and above all in our personal lives right. and religious lives. Right. Okay, very good. Uh, here's a, a report from the Register about a new study, uh, and this one was published by Georgetown Center uh, for Applied Research in the Apostolate, CARA, uh, the it's apostolate. Uh, commonly mm -hmm. known as yeah. uh, commissioned uh -huh. by the University of Notre Dame's McGrath Institute for Church Life, challenges the Pew study from 2019 about the real presence uh, appreciation of Catholics. A new study shows that almost two-thirds of adult Catholics believe in the real presence. Significantly different from often cited 2019 Pew research suggests that only one-third uh, believed in the church's teaching on the Blessed Sacrament. Um, they talk about, Kara uh, cites the fact that there's a difference in wording of both studies that they believe yeah. was a large yeah. part of the reason for the, for the discrepancy because of people understanding exactly what the language meant and referred to. Uh, so I just thought that was uh, an interesting fact that they came out, obviously, at a time where we've got this Eucharistic Congress coming up next summer as well. No, I think, uh, you know, I, I had a, a, a pretty good suspicion mm -hmm. something like that was behind mm -hmm. uh, the remarkably low statistic, but uh, very difficult to prove. The, the thing is, is you can sometimes, if you ask a question that's very direct, like, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, have you had a suicidal uh, thought or something of mm -hmm. that nature? Or, you know, have you experienced, you know, health decreases mm -hmm. or have you experienced an increase in anxiety? Oftentimes, you know, people will respond to these things. But when you have an opinion survey, mm -hmm. you have to be really careful because if it's not something that somebody can directly answer out of their own experience, but requires them to interpret the meaning of the question, then it really 
depends on getting a, a, a kind of an expert. Now, Pew uh, generally is very good about this. They do try to formulate questions uh, that, you know, are, are easily understood. But when you're dealing with the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, I forget what the Pew uh, uh, wording was on the question, but when I looked at their, the wording of the question, they do disclose it, you know, in their, in their um, you know, the publication of their survey. I always, I thought to mm -hmm. myself, this could be a, a little bit ambiguous mm -hmm. uh, about what is meant here, and people might actually misunderstand it. Right. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, I would have to say that that CARA study, probably in terms of the average uh, sitting in the Pew Catholic, right. probably is a much more accurate statistic uh, than the Pew statistic. Right. But uh, as I said, the Pew survey generally does a pretty good job. Their questions are really pretty straightforward. But th in that case, I remember reading that. This is mm -hmm. way back a couple of years ago. Yeah, 2019. I remember right. reading it going, oh, yeah, 2019. This could be, uh, th that could be pretty ambiguous. Right. And I could see how people not trying to be dishonest mm. would answer a no Mm -hmm. uh, in order to, you know, you know, fit what they thought mm -hmm. the question was asking for. And I would suppose that right. if the CAR study did something which was a little bit more uh, transparent, I think they probably got the right. truest statistic. And, uh, you know, they've, uh, you know, CAR does really, really excellent studies. Right. So um, I would say, yeah, right. uh, I, I would believe that right. statistic. So I'm right. very heartened. But, that is but still, I think we, we need to work well, on it. A lot yeah. of work. Well, I think, I, I, I'm not yeah. so much in a Pew study, but years ago I used to think sometimes I'd read these studies and people would be offered is, does the bread and wine become Jesus's body, blood, soul, and divinity? Or yeah. does, Je does, the bre does Jesus become real present in the, in the bread and wine? Well, one is transubstantiation, yeah. one is consubstantiation, right? Yeah, and that's right. so. Mm -hmm. If people think, you know, they might confuse those two things, saying, oh, yeah, well, that's really Jesus in the bread and wine, uh, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, thinking they're saying the same thing or meaning the same thing yeah, in their mind. Yeah. Uh, and I thought yeah, for a while that right. that was some confusion that people had, so. Oh, that, that's right. So, you yeah. know, it could be any one of right. a number of things. And, and so you have to be very, very careful right. about how the question is asked and that it's very clear Right. as to what it means. Otherwise, like people will generally say no to what they're not sure of. Right. And that, that's a fact. It's interesting. So. They talk about how people learned about uh, the real presence. They said for those who said they learned from their parents, 67% believe in the real presence, so that how important parents are. 73% yeah. of those who learned from a parish program while 75% who learned their information in Catholic schools, okay? 60, I thought this was interesting, 60% yeah. of those who learned information about the Eucharist from the internet believe in the real presence. So I think you must be doing good work. Yeah. Maybe EWTN's doing some good work too. <laughs> yeah, hey. Right? Yeah, yeah, we should get our, give ourselves a pat on the back. Right, right. So, so it, 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 yeah. it, it's having yeah. its, its results to have the, the truth out there. Yeah. One last article before we get to some questions. Uh, this was uh, one from a couple of weeks ago, but the Catholic World Report caught my eye. What do all the false Christs of our age have in common? Um, and they talk about the idea in, in this particular story about the, the imposters are, are numerous. There is Jesus, the personal guru, the political revolutionary, the amoral mystic, the Greek stoic. Yeah, you, always, you don't like those stoics. I know you always don't like those. The socialist <laughs> and even the Buddhist. 
What unites these other Christs is yeah. that their handlers and creators either deny that their Jesus died on the cross or insist the cross had no supernatural meaning or salvific value. There's a simple reason for this. Satan knows that Christ without the cross is not Christ at all. Your thoughts? Oh, I, I totally agree with, the, with what's being, being said there, and I think there are uh, a lot more than the, the seven uh, false Christs that uh, uh, the author mentions there. I think mm -hmm. there are a ton of them, but uh, he's pretty much right. Um, I would say that you've got um, no cross is one of the big uh, uh, issues. Christ without the cross is a very big one. Uh, Christ without sin is another big one. Mm. And uh, no Satan in the world. Um, you know, so Christ uh, didn't have that in mind to, to defeat Satan. He, you know, Satan uh, was just, uh, uh, you know, this medieval invention came way after Christ. Uh, those are the three mm -hmm. big ones for me. You know, if I, if I see any one of the three, mm -hmm. I pretty much know, uh, you know, there's something not just amiss, but generally right. something intentionally right. amiss. They're trying to, as it were, get Christ wrong mm -hmm. in order to make Christ more palatable right. to a culture that has already right. definitely been uh, put under the spell of what I call radical level one and level two happiness. In other mm -hmm. words, the, uh, the idea that happiness is uh, materialism or pleasure, right. um, you know, or that uh, uh, happiness is ego comparative advantage and success. Right. And uh, level two, of course, uh, is uh, pretty much out mm -hmm. there full speed. Right, absolutely. It reminds me a little bit of Zen Buddhism, which is an adaptation in the United States and places in the Western Hemisphere of Buddhism kind of taking anything out of the tough stuff out of Buddhism and oh, turning yeah. it into a kind of, That's right. you know, uh, whatever you yeah. feel good about is, is, is very Zen for you uh, uh, kind of a thing. That's you know? right, yeah. Absolutely. Whatever puts you into a contemplative state of mind. Yeah, exactly. Right, absolutely. So let's move on to our questions uh, so we can get caught up on those. Uh, here's one, dear Father Spitzer. I asked my brilliant brother, who has a PhD in cell biology and anatomy, if he's familiar with your work. He said, yes, he's terrific. I've used his books to support my own work after reading parts twice with a dictionary handy. I know that feeling, of course. We <laughs> love you, uh, Father Spitzer, and you too, Doug. Uh, and this is Lisa Marie. Thanks, Lisa Marie. <laughs> oh, thanks, Lisa Marie. That's real nice. I'm glad to know it. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, recently uh, uh, I saw a review of one, I, I, I'm not sure which book, might be the, the Moral Wisdom, maybe a later book, uh, uh, Peter Kraft, who I think is uh, a genius, uh, calling you a genius, so oh, I have yeah. to concur when one genius oh, calls another yeah, one no, a genius. Yeah, no, I have to thank Peter for that. Right. Uh, uh, you know, and I didn't even put a check in the mail yet. So, yeah, right. Uh, so, so that was very nice of Peter uh, uh, to do that because, uh, uh, you know, like I said, right. I, I respect him as the genius. Absolutely. So. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, You're in good company there, right? right. Actually, right. Yeah, They always exactly. say, why are you worried about these opinions of these people who you don't respect? Worry about the people's opinions you do respect, right? Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, our parish priest has mentioned several times during Mass that the devil can get into one's mind. If this is true, are there evil spirits that roam the earth? Also, how can the devil enter one's mind in the first place? Anthony. 
Well, Anthony, uh, um, let's just take the first question. Are there evil spirits roaming the world? Yes, 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 there are. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, they're, uh, you know, I mean, they're not just kind of walking around, you know, <laughs> being tourists. I mean, they're very intentional. Uh, as they're, uh, you know, roaming the world, but uh, uh, they're definitely looking for people who are vulnerable, people who, uh, you know, don't have a religion, people who don't have a focus on a specific kind of doctrine, people who don't have any sacramental graces. Uh, those are the uh, low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. uh, for e evil spirits. So that's the first mm -hmm. uh, thing to recognize. So that's that's true. Uh, the second part of your question. Uh, how does a devil enter your mind? Uh, well, you have to distinguish between, you know, can a devil take control of your mind? Mm -hmm. uh, the answer is no. Uh, you, you're always going to have your freedom. Now, can a, uh, a devil, for example, in a possessed person, can he take over your subconscious or take over uh, your imagination, uh, you know, so that you will uh, be, you know, uttering terrible profanities and saying things mm -hmm. that you, you can't uh, uh, possibly have meant, right. you know, if you were in your right mind or uh, even speaking languages that you've never even heard of before, uh, you know, can he do that? Yes, he could do that, mm -hmm. but he can't take over, as it were, uh, the, the nexus, the rational uh, nexus and self-consciousness of your freedom. Mm -hmm. So he can't possess you to make you unfree for the very simple reason that God won't let him do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you don't have to worry about that. But can he influence your mind? Mm -hmm. Can he influence your, especially your imagination? Uh, he can't influence your mind so as to not allow you to be free. But what he can do is inflame your imagination, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a problem with lust, then he's going to give you the imagination. He's looking for images. He'll give you uh, images that will, you know, very much put the pressure on you and get you tempted. Or if you are, uh, you know, greed is the thing and you just love material possessions and things of that nature. Oh, he can give you a ton of images of everything that might would uh, delight you from jewelry to cars or whatever it may mm -hmm. be that, that delights you and gets you really feeling the pressure around that. Or if, you know, um, if you're mad at somebody, mm -hmm. You know, and all he's got to do, right, is inflame that anger and get you really going. And so he puts mm -hmm. little images in, in your mind of that person insulting you in another way or doing this or that and gets you really boiling mad, mm -hmm. you know, at that person seeking revenge and so forth. So, yes, it's uh, exactly how he works. He can definitely, uh, you know, uh, present images to the imagination. That's called temptation. Mm -hmm. And mostly it's through the imagination that he works. Uh, he really can't get into mm -hmm. what's called the rational center, the self-conscious center, and the will, uh, all of which God denies him, as it were, access to in order that you can be free. Mm -hmm. um, now, you can see, for example, with Robbie Mannheim, you know, if we're going to take the well-known uh, exorcism case that was behind that book, The Exorcist, mm -hmm. if you take that... Um, uh, you know, seriously, what happens is when Robbie's, um, uh, you know, rational consciousness is going to be blocked by this other spirit, always his eyes would roll back, right? So we see that the person 
um, you know, goes into a trance, mm -hmm. right? So he, basically in that trance uh, where there's a kind of a suspension, but not a takeover, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of a blocking of the rational, self-conscious will, um, uh, you know, center of freedom, mm -hmm. you know, when it's blocked off for a second there, the eyes do roll back, a trance-like state uh, kind of ensues, and then, of course, the, the strange voices come out, you know, they have strange powers and uh, do all kinds of things, and, uh, you know, you wouldn't recognize the person because they manifest real mm -hmm. evil. Now, in those particular cases, um, there, there's not a takeover of the mind, uh, but what's happening there is a blocking uh, of uh, the person's uh, uh, self-consciousness. Right. And in that case, the objective is uh, to basically make that person suffer and to scare everybody around that person, mm -hmm. um, you know, because for some reason that person has let them in. Now, you'd say, well, wait a minute, if they let them in, um, you know, then they t took over their conscious freedom. No, Robbie would mm -hmm. come, uh, you know, out of the trance and right. he would be free again. And so that's why right. the priests uh, who are doing that exorcism were trying to get him first to take, uh, you know, his uh, a profession of faith and then to give him uh, a confession and uh, holy right. communion. Uh, because they knew that if they did that, and shortly, in fact, after they did that, mm -hmm. Uh, Robbie um, uh, was uh, the uh, the exorcism was successful, right. and uh, the uh, evil right. spirit was cast out of Robbie. So, with that kind of a situation yeah. like that, we think about a guardian angel, us each being assigned a guardian angel. And there's a question coming up about uh -huh. it. Uh, yeah. But so, is there a demon assigned to us, or, or, or are they more free floating, no. free floating, and more based well, on where they believe they have the best opportunities? Uh, well, that's it. They're mm -hmm. opportunistic. Okay. That word is exactly the correct word. Okay. Uh, they are very opportunistic. So they're looking for low-hanging fruit all the okay. time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, a person without, uh, you know, as I make clear in that Christ versus Satan in our mm -hmm. Daily Lives book, I mean, it, basically, if you uh, uh, take that very seriously, uh, it's clear that a person who has no church, no sacraments, no moral teaching, no connection mm -hmm. with a God or with Christ, uh, you know, no accountability uh, to, um, you know, the divine being behind their conscience, right? Uh, a person like that is so vulnerable and, you know, easily, easily swayed uh, to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. You can always see, too, that a person with a chameleon character, you know, wants to please everybody, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, has no sense of of uh, self-worth and response, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, those kinds of people, um, you know, when they don't have any religion, I mean, it's a double bogey. I mean, they get, mm -hmm. uh, they get it, uh, you know, coming and mm -hmm. going because the evil spirit sees, you know, pure power of manipulation walking down the street. Mm -hmm. It's like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Yeah. He, he's going to go for you. Mm -hmm. He surely, I mean, go for that person rather than going for you or to a person who is very ensconced in the sacraments. I mean, that's an uphill battle. Okay. Why do that when there's so many people in our culture? I mean, just a flock. I mean, right. talk about, you know, uh, you know, uh, an excess harvest. Right. I mean, th th there's so many, you know, vulnerable people out there. The evil spirits are, could be kept busy 24-7, right. ranking them up, you know, just right. to, to persuade them to choose hell. 
and uh, <laughs> they okay. do too. Speaking of that, let's go to another question that, uh, from a different perspective along the same idea. Dear Father Spitzer, I recently yeah. saw an interview with a priest who said, it wasn't you, that the church has never formally defined the existence of the devil or demons. He also said he was unsure if angels and demons existed. Is this true? The Bible states Jesus interacted with both. This is Brian. Well, Brian, first of all, you're right. Jesus interacted with both. Uh, that's the first thing. And secondly, Jesus spent a lot of time, uh, you know, uh, challenging Satan. I guess, you know, his whole you know, ministry of exorcism. By the way, how could the church actually have a formal right of exorcism, now that we're speaking about it, without defining the reality of Satan? I mean, what is this priest thinking? I, I do not know. Are you sure you heard that priest correctly? I mean, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> you know, you know, the whole right of exorcism would be a colossal waste of time if the church did not right. define the reality of Satan in the world. So, uh, you know, and of course, did Jesus believe in Satan? Yes. I mean, what are the, 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 the three fulcrum points for Jesus coming to the earth? Number one, to bring his kingdom. Number two, to defeat Satan in order to, you know, bring his kingdom. He has to defeat him, you know, and give you the possibility of converting anytime you want through the sacrament of reconciliation, through the Eucharist, mm -hmm. etc. And, and, of course, at the end of the day, he has to bring the church to be the administrator uh, of sacraments, but also mm -hmm. to be the interpreter of his teachings. And he did these three things with concerted activity, gaining, a, of course, he's always re He's got the 12 apostles, but he's recruiting other disciples. He's giving them various, you know, hierarchy of powers, mm -hmm. you know, one for Peter, one for the 12, one for other disciples, etc., one for deacons. You can see that he's basically a, a definitely on, you know, a church-building escapade, a Satan-defeating, uh, you know, a mission and a, um, uh, you know, a, um, a bringing of his kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, mission and of course all three of them overlap or, and are interrelated mm -hmm. in their conditions. But has the church defined Satan? Absolutely the church defines Satan. Has the church defined angels? Yes, absolutely mm -hmm. the church has defined angels. Did Jesus believe in Satan? Absolutely. Why would he premise his whole mission on the defeat of Satan if he didn't believe in Satan? Why would he spend all his time on exorcisms if he didn't believe? Why would he give his disciples the power to exercise if he didn't believe in Satan? I mean, I read that's my case. I mean, uh, somebody is clearly, I, I, you know, maybe somebody misunderstood that priest, but mm. it's, it's hardly impossible to, to think that, that the church, you know, has not right. done this and that Jesus did not believe in Satan and angels. I mean, he clearly did. You know, I mean, when Jesus made comparisons, you know, uh, you know, uh, in heaven they'll be like the angels. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he's not referring to, you know, uh, um, you know, a mythical creature, mm -hmm. uh, because Jesus, you know, loved to use symbolic metaphors. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's pretty clear. You know, <laughs> he believed in angels too. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, I'll just leave it at that. But. Right. Uh, um, um, you know, clearly, clearly he did, and clearly the church does. Uh, right. You, know, uh, define you think that's a little uh, the heavy dose of psychologizing kind of these things, where you know you do that as an exorcism, and really it's the psychology of doing it that actually makes the person better, not driving out the evil spirit, as the doctors well. and the exorcist <laughs> posited way back when. 
Yeah, but of course, you know, to say that the church actually did it for psychological rather than <laughs> spiritual purposes is just laughable. I mean, uh, that's on the verge of, uh, you know, saying, well, the scientists really are, uh, uh, you know, um, trying to discover uh, new sources of, uh, of particles or energy or uh, and so forth to get to the bottom of uh, of the wave equation, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. because they really wanted to feel good psychologically. Uh, you know, they just like the challenge and the exercise. Uh, they're not doing it to get to the truth. Come yeah. on, you know. I mean, this is, uh, you know, uh, you can. I guess you can use the psychological analogy to explain away anything, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's at the verge of stupidity and ridiculousness that that you would do it, and. Uh, so I guess, you know, you, you don't want to become too laughable uh, in uh, trying to psychologize it away. Okay, very good. With that, going to yeah. say we're going to take a break uh, as it's coming up. All I right. figure we'll take a short break a little bit early. Uh, but, of course, stay right there, Father Spitzer. We've got much more ahead. And okay. you as well, stay with us. We've got many more questions. And then our topic ahead here on Father Spitzer's Universe. Stay with us for part two. Thanks. for staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe, talking about his book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. But first, we want to get through some questions still, and first we want to mention about the Eucharistic Revival, the National Eucharistic Revival. It's coming up July 17th to the 21st, not too early to make plans, 2024, Indianapolis, Indiana. Celebrate the power of the Eucharist with us. Go to EWTN.com forward slash Eucharist to see how you can register at a discounted rate. You can also get information, programs, and other content devoted to the Eucharist. That's at EWTN.com forward slash Eucharist. And of course, EWTN will be all over that event as it comes about and also the, the Eucharistic processions that will be happening as well uh, throughout the year. So with that, we turn back to Father Spitzer who will be featured, I'm sure, prominently at the uh, at the event uh, as well. So if you're one of these people who, anyway. <laughs> who missed Father Spitzer at, at, at our family celebration, here's a great chance to see him in person. So here's another question for you, Father. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, I'm a 63-year-old man that I would not call religious, but have always read the Bible and believed in God. My wife and I have been watching your program on EW10 every week, and we love each one. My wife was raised Catholic in the Philippines, and we were actually married there in the Catholic Church. My question is, how do oh, we get good. involved? How do we get involved with the Catholic Church again? Can we just go to Mass? I'm not sure what would be the first step. Thank you, and this is Scott. Well, Scott, um, my recommendation would be uh, to first go to confession, you know, mm -hmm. just to, uh, if it's been a long while since you, you've been uh, going to church, I would say first go to confession, mm -hmm. um, and um, then uh, after that confession, yes, please do go to Mass. And then, uh, you know, as you, you know, you're, you're going to see um, that the Mass is, uh, you know, much richer maybe than mm -hmm. you could have possibly expected. And you're also going to uh, be begin to sense as you go to Mass, because of the grace of the Holy Eucharist, you're going to sense a greater and greater tie uh, to the Lord. You're going to care more about religion. You're going to care more about uh, Jesus' word, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that... Uh, 
uh, you're going to hear in the gospel readings there. And then, you know, at some point, uh, the Holy Spirit is really going to move you uh, through your church attendance, through the sacraments that you're receiving. You're going to see that uh, uh, it's going to, you know, kind of break you away from some of the, uh, uh, you know, more or less the, the dark thoughts or even some of the ways in which, you know, um, uh, we, we could just sort of, you know, slip through, lie, uh, through life. And so the one thought I have is um, the best way to kind of solidify your momentum going forward is to find something you really like to do. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're a teacher type or something like that. Maybe you hate teaching uh, and you would never want to do anything like that. Maybe you would rather, uh, you know, just do something with your church's uh, charitable goods committee or the um, St. Vincent de Paul to help mm -hmm. people, you know, who are in need to get some clothing, or maybe it would be something, you know, if you've got a finance expertise to work on the Parish Finance Council, but to use your gifts somehow, mm -hmm. and there's all kinds of committees, all kinds of ways in which you could do it, mm -hmm. you could just find some way to just use your gifts on the parish level to start helping out. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna find a community of people when you start doing that, uh, you know, who really share the same faith that you do mm -hmm. and um, and that your wife does. She could find, doesn't have to be the same thing you're doing, but if she finds something mm -hmm. else she wants to do too. And then, you know, the, the two of you get a whole new cadre of friends. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see, it just begins to naturally happen. Mm -hmm. And those will be what I call faith friends. Mm -hmm. And faith friends turn out to be the best friends uh, in, in the long run. And uh, they're, they're the most long-standing friends, and they're the ones who really, uh, when you need that help, they come by, mm -hmm. and um, they're not going to preclude, uh, you know, prayer and sacraments and, and so forth. So I would just say um, probably that would be the order. I do confession first, uh, then start attending the Mass and really trying to learn what the wonderful mm -hmm. liturgy, the wonderful Mass is. Mm -hmm. uh, you could just go to my website, to modgiscenter.com, and just go to Father Spitzer's resource book mm -hmm. and go to volume nine. That's what we used to call the big book, Father Spitzer's resource book. Just go to the resource book and just read all about the Mass there, Holy Communion, mm -hmm. all of these things, You're, and the other sacraments uh, that are also in volume 10 of that mm -hmm. book. And uh, you'll see pretty clearly in a hurry. It's pretty deep and fascinating mm -hmm. and grace-filled and kind of wonderful and then as you kind of you know not just you know to you know learn things learning is great but remember use your gifts uh, to help build the kingdom of God whatever they may be mm -hmm. maybe you're a good handy person maybe you're a good uh, person with people maybe you're a good finance person maybe you're a good right. uh, teacher person whatever it may be use your gifts mm -hmm. um, and have your wife use her gifts to you know help out the parish and build the kingdom of God okay great very good uh, here's an interesting question. Dear Father Spitzer, a priest who I otherwise very much admire speaks publicly on occasion of his love of hunting. Hmm, I wonder what Jesuit that might be. Uh, hmm. Uh, hmm. But anyway, another <laughs> priest <Mitch> has. There. <laughs> it's not you. Uh, another priest who has yeah. written a book called The Catholic Cowboy Way rides broncos and rodeos. In both cases, it seems. Yeah. Pleasure is being derived from an activity which involves the infliction of pain in, and in the case of hunting death on another of God's uh, creatures. I know that both of these activities are popular with large elements of the general public, but should a priest be so engaged? 
John. So I guess the, you know, I don't know if riding a horse uh, or a bronco is, 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 you know, doing anything yeah. particularly to a, uh, it's really an not, animal, not, but, not, you not know, particularly so, for all yeah. right, but. But I would say, you know, with respect to hunting, of course the church has uh, never condemned it because mm -hmm. that was the way that human beings lived for the longest time. And to this very day, of course, people uh, who eat any, consume any mm -hmm. meat, as I do, uh, you know, of course that's going mm -hmm. to mean killing of animals in order to procure that meat. And so uh, the church has never you know, said that that was bad. You know, mm -hmm. Peter's great experience there of, you know, all foods uh, are, are good. You know, he's been given that, including meat, uh, you know, coming from, you know, uh, the voice of God, according to Peter, mm -hmm. right? So the idea, you know, has always been there that it's okay mm -hmm. uh, to kill animals, especially for the sake of, of, of uh, eating or getting meat. and and so forth, we, you should try to do it humanely, mm -hmm. right? So you don't wanna, in a hunt, you surely do not want to wound an animal and just, you know, leave him, you know, mm -hmm. uh, on his own to, to suffer in pain. That would be, a, you know, a terrible thing to do. But I mean, at the same time, if you kill the, 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 uh, um, the game, or, mm -hmm. you know, there, the idea is to butcher uh, that animal and to use the the uh, the meat mm. and that's of course been you know since time immemorial right. as they say immemorial uh, you know we've been doing this yeah. and um, you know uh, I think uh, you know God has provided you know for humane killing of animals uh, so that at least uh, you know uh, um, we could use um, uh, that right. for, for meat and for other things right. and uh, that's been the case for uh, uh, right. Since well, since right. not only the Christian Church, but since right. the beginning of uh, of human beings with an intellect. In fact, right. way before then too. Right. right. <laughs> and again, hunting many times, uh, you know, is only allowed in certain seasons. It's designed to thin out the yeah. um, the flock or the herd or whatever. You know, it's mm -hmm. not you know some yeah. unabashed. Everybody's got a shotgun shooting everything that moves in the woods. So, yes. Right. That's right. No, it's yeah. it's done a or the old buffalo thing, and people uh, see the images of the old buffalo hunts oh, from yeah. the 1870s or something, and think, what a waste. Yeah. So let's see if we've yeah. got a cup. We've got 17 minutes left, and I still want to get to the book. So keep that in mind when you answer <laughs> okay. this question, dear Father Spitzer. Can you oh. comment on? Can you comment on the latest shroud research being performed by the International Institute for Advanced Studies of Space Representation? Uh, sciences in Palermo, Italy, using high-resolution imagery and analysis of small sections of the shroud. Multiple positions of the hands and feet can be seen suggesting motion as the image was being formed. Nails in the hands and right foot can be also seen in multiple positions. I have been gathering research on the shroud for over 20 years, and this latest research is astonishing, to say the least. Thank you for any insight you can shed on this amazing research. Lynn. Uh, well, Lynn, here's my uh, thought on it. Right now, I just, uh, you know, the the trying to get this into uh, um, what we call a peer-reviewed um, format mm -hmm. uh, has been uh, the name of the game. And uh, there is disagreement that um, uh, these images really do show motion. Mm -hmm. There are some other alternative explanations. To put it into a peer-reviewed format, you would have to eliminate those other uh, explanations for the appearance of movement before you could publish the result that real movement is present. Now, no doubt 
there is an appearance of movement that is there. But without the elimination of other alternative explanations, mm -hmm. there, and there are other alternative explanations uh, for you know, these effects or what appears to be motion mm -hmm. there, without the elimination of them positively, we cannot say that motion, um, you know, that movement is detectable mm -hmm. by the images on those shrouds, uh, on the shroud. Now, uh, you know, I, the Palermo group is a good group. I mean, they are doing, there's a lot of good research they're doing. Uh, but I think you have to be very, very mm -hmm. careful there uh, to make sure that the alternative explanations are eliminated. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the case, like, of uh, typing the blood of the 372 blood stains on the shroud or something of that nature, that's an easy thing to do. Uh, you know, and it's, you know, again, you, you're not, you don't have to eliminate huge other explanations. But when you're talking about really super sophisticated imaging, mm. where you're not only doing image enhancement, but image comparison and enhancement, and then doing, you know, m uh, uh, moving backdrops uh, compared to stable images and things of that nature, you've got to be so careful, mm -hmm. especially, you know, if you are, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, elucidating uh, parts of the image, uh, you know, uh, with computer enhanced uh, imaging as well. Mm -hmm. You really have to be able to knock out a lot of other alternative explanations. That yeah. has not yet been done. Okay. So I would say you're free to believe what you want, mm -hmm. but in terms of a peer-reviewed article, it's just not there. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll be the bad one here and ask a follow-up question, but I'm wondering with this sure. particular situation, if it, if it did have motion and it was motion, is that a problem or just something interesting? No. Okay. No, it'd be, I mean, you know, again, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, it would mean that Jesus was literally coming right off the, the shroud. Gotcha. Uh, and, um, you know, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, in the particle radiation hypothesis, though, um, you know, the way I look at it is that the, the particles themselves are doing the movement. And mm -hmm. again, this, so did the body do the movement or do, do the particles do the movement? In my view, it's the particles that are doing the movement. Now, I have nothing against, if the body moved, why would I have anything yep. against yeah. that? You know, it would be an indication of the resurrection. Uh, but, of course, all the particles uh, disintegrating in that body simultaneously, that's such a miracle above the miracles. I mean, I, I can't even begin to explain how such a thing would happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, the odds against one particle disintegrating, let alone two simultaneously disintegrating, but seven octillion particles mm -hmm. disintegrating simultaneously, that's like, you know, a trillion, 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 to one against that happening. And, of course, if you really believe that I got a bridge to sell you mm -hmm. I mean that's a miracle uh, you're not going to naturalistically scientifically explain that mm -hmm. I mean that 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 you, you know you're in Miracleville right there <laughs> and so I don't I don't need anything more uh, you know than to see okay. that all those particles have the exact effect of creating a perfect three-dimensional photographic negative image on a non-photographically mm -hmm. sensitive linen cloth with perfect three-dimensional proportionality to even the interior of the body as well as uh, the uh, exterior uh, uh, flesh on the, on the surface of the body. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. I mean, th this is like Miracleville 
and unnaturalistically explicable from start to finish. If there's a movement, right. okay. If there's not a movement, I can tell you this right now. Jesus became a spiritual body and left an imprint right on that cloth as he did so with this huge flux of neutrons and protons and deuterons that basically mm -hmm. gave rise to the most scientifically right. inexplicable uh, image that is in the, the most unique image in the history of, mm -hmm. of, of uh, historical artifacts and the most scientifically tested uh, historical right. artifact in, in, in the whole history of humankind. So there you go. I okay. mean, it, this, this thing is amazing. If it's movement, but, that's great. Right. If there's not, okay. no problem. But we don't have a peer-reviewed. Right, right. Uh, but you know, so something yet. to keep our eye on and see see what's happening. Yep. Let's go to uh, you your bet. book, uh, page 31. You talk about evidence for the perspective of loving obedience. And on page 32, you say, uh -huh. obedience out of love is quite different from obedience out of fear and obedience out of coercion. But then we always hear about fear yep. of the Lord. How are we to understand that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, uh, you know, there are actually 12 different Hebrew words for fear. Mm -hmm. And so when this is translated uh, by a single Greek or a single English term, Yaiko Rama, right? It gets now. There are actually several Greek terms for fear, but but the point is, is it's far fewer um, than the Hebrew. But several of the Hebrew words for fear are related to awe, and that's very uh, what we normally mean, you know, uh, by fear. You know, is is you know that trepidation, that danger is afoot. Uh, that is not what's meant by the uh, by the Hebrew terms that basically refer to what we would call in English awe. It's unfortunately translated as fear um, uh, in the Bible. Oh, okay. And oh. awe really is mm -hmm. an overwhelming sense of God's beauty and majesty and glory. Hmm. Right? It's the kind of things on, upon which mysticism is is built upon, where you basically see you know sense. Uh, in multiple ways, right? The the, the beauty, the glory, the uh, of, of the majesty uh, of God, which just makes you bow down and worship. In other words, it's called pure creature consciousness, but it's not trepidation in the sense. I mean, you, you could feel trepidation because that that being is so far ahead of you is so mysteriously incomprehensible and so powerful and so it's called creature consciousness but creature consciousness doesn't have to uh, cause perturbation of the soul cause you know a, a, a very negative uh, you know reaction it could actually be very positive so when the saints or the prophets are talking about awe and they're bowing down before God you know, the, obviously the reason they're bowing down is because they have an extreme sense of their creature consciousness before this very powerful, mysterious, fascinating uh, 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 creator uh, that, that is, you know, so far above them that they are, you know, they, they're compelled to worship. But it's not mm -hmm. a negative fear. It is a very positive, awe-inspiring, and that's that word inspiring is a key to understanding it. It's uplifting mm -hmm. the person um, with their creatureliness, but it's really the glory of the Creator Himself. Mm -hmm. And that's really, that word fear should better be translated as awe or awe-inspiring mm -hmm. yeah. in so many of those cases, yeah. you know, to be overwhelmed well, by it, the glory of God. It certainly makes more, sen more sense of, of it, in, in, you know, for a person to yeah. be thinking of it. 
in, in that way. In uh, yeah. on the bottom of 32, perspective on this volume is reason for a pride mm -hmm. revelation. You have four different methodologies you, you kind of use uh, in dealing with this and demonstrating that. You go on to say that uh, decline in emotional health will be more serious in individuals who reject, as you talked about, both religion and moral mm -hmm. norms. So is it possible for somebody mm -hmm. to have moral norms but not have religion? I guess it is. Yes, yeah, I mean, and a lot of people say, well, I follow my conscience or, you know, I've, you know, I, I know what, you know, I, I don't, you know, they believe in the silver rule very naturally. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do any harm to others that's not necessary. I, I want to minimize harm in my life. Uh, but they'll say in the same breath, I, I don't have any religion. And, mm -hmm. and that happens, uh, you know, a good amount, a, a, a good deal of the time. I, I've known a few academics in my day who I thought lived pretty uh, good lives. They certainly were not trying to harm anybody. Uh, you know, and certainly they had no uh, a real belief in God. Mm -hmm. However, if you believe the Parvatiya studies, right, if you take a look at that, you can see a direct correlation between a person who has religion mm -hmm. and their willingness to do the right ethical thing in a very challenging situation. Mm -hmm. That's where you see that the person who has religion who finds himself or herself accountable, right, to an agency or some kind of a moral authority beyond himself, that person at that juncture, he's much more likely to do um, the, the challenging mm -hmm. thing, right, to do the right thing, even though um, there's challenging circumstances. So he could be despised, he, he might be under pressure, he might, you know, um, uh, you know, doesn't want to be ridiculed and so forth. And he thinks, oh, if I do the right thing, you know, I'm going to lose all my money or I'm going to, uh, you know, be ridiculed or, you know, and then there's a lot of forces that are just telling him, just cut a few corners, mm -hmm. don't worry about it, you know, et cetera. And, uh, and he's, you know, if God is there as a prospect, He's likely to say no, or a person who is really being tempted. They want something that, uh, uh, some uh, status, some promotion, some uh, car, some, uh, uh, you know, I mean, pick your, your deadly sin, you know, lust, you know, greed, uh, you, know, uh, you know, vengeance, uh, vanity, whatever. He, you, you know, he's really being tempted, 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 uh, you know, to do the wrong thing. And if he has uh, a belief in God or a higher moral authority beyond himself, he's much more likely to do the right thing in that challenging situation. So I think the Parvatiya study would say, you know, easily, right. you know, pre people can have very good values, mm -hmm. um, you know, who don't have religion. Uh, and they could have a, a, an active conscience that they listen to okay. without having religion. But it's that one really, you know, the where you get into the challenging moment, mm -hmm. I want this and I, 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 I don't have that force to say no, mm -hmm. or I really shouldn't do this, but I'm being pressured and I don't want to lose, uh, experience all these consequences, so maybe I'll cut the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where the religion comes in right. and really saves the day, not only for a lot of people, but cuts off that um, you know, that even entertaining the thought long enough so that it becomes overwhelming. So the, uh, 
uh, I think religion does have a very, very strong moral purpose uh, in, in the, uh, deciding an action in challenging situations. Okay, and, and, and kind of our contemporary society's cavalier marginalization of religion, objective moral norms, particularly Christian objective moral norms, may well be the undoing of its individual citizens, family structure. We've talked about that. And if we do not want to follow the recipe mm -hmm. for insanity, repeating the same unsuccessful, unsuccessful behavior and expecting a different result, we may want to reconsider the church's teachings. And, and in this book, obviously, we go on mm -hmm. to talk about the 12 controversial moral doctrines of the Catholic Church. But then you jump mm -hmm. to section four, and you talk about something called social ethics and the church's social teaching. And you say, when we turn to social yeah. ethics, we encounter a new problem. Jesus did not directly state his position on social ethics. What are they, and why didn't he? Okay, well, the, the point, of course, is Jesus, of course, talked about charity, so caritas. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, he, you know, in, in that term, uh, you know, which the church uh, liberally uses, that's kind of, I need to take care of my neighbor, right? I, I have to, um, you know, seek the good. And Jesus does kind of give the outline of, of charity, you know, whatsoever you do for these least ones, you do unto me. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of, a, you know, maybe a social ethic, um, but he's not talking about social structures. It's still about the human individual per mm -hmm. se. So Jesus wasn't going around talking about socialism or capitalism. Okay. Uh, you know, pe some people and theologians try to say he did, mm -hmm. uh, but he didn't. Uh, you know, he, he, you know, his kingdom was not of this world. Mm -hmm. However, we've got to deal with um, not only a sin in, in, in the society, uh, you know, on a personal level. That's the big level. Let's concern ourselves with that first. Let's get that first. You know, people who say, I'm going to talk about social sin, but don't talk about personal sin. Yiko Rama, uh, that's a real <laughs> tough deal. And of course, Jesus didn't believe uh, that was the right order of pursuit. Mm -hmm. But the key thing, though, is we still also have to take some responsibility if we have the power. Now, not all people don't have the power, uh, you know, to, to affect social policy or social ethics, because we're talking now about a collective, we're talking about a society, we're talking about a government, we're talking about a polis or a, a so, you know, a governmental group or, uh, you know, a city-state, right? When you're talking about social ethics, you're not just talking about what I'm responsible for. So, you know, of course, all of us have the right to vote and we can influence society there, mm -hmm. but that's not like saying, you know, uh, you know, you can really affect social policy. But where we do have influence, um, the church does teach that we should try our best, mm -hmm. um, you know, to seek things that are going to better the society. And so the church has always been involved in some form of social ethics, uh, but that is the church uh, who's been doing that. And so she began to formulate uh, various principles of social ethics. Now, of course, she formally does this for the first time in Rerum Novarum in 1891 mm -hmm. with Pope Leo XIII. Now, that was, of course, a very important document where we see the elucidation 
of the principle of solidarity, the principle of subsidiarity, the principle of the common good, the principle of the individual dignity of every human person, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we see those seven principles of Catholic social ethics. They're finally stated, uh, you know, right outright. But mm -hmm. even going back to St. Augustine and others, right, when the church came into its social political power after the Edict of Milan, right, when, you know, Constantine gets out there and basically, uh, you know, makes Christianity the, Ro the official Roman religion. Mm -hmm. When that happens, we can see that uh, um, at that juncture, the church becomes very concerned about social ethics. Right. And that's why St. Augustine starts, uh, you know, writing books like The City of God, right? right. Now, you look at that book, um, you know, it's all about the city of men, the city of God, you know, the interrelationship between the two. And it's now a big, you begin to and, see the and birth. It's a, and it's a big book, and it has a lot of information in yeah. it, and we're just out of time. So we're going to yeah. ask you to uh, <laughs> give us your blessing on the way out the door, and we'll have to save that for the next time we get together. <laughs> That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Well, bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord, who gives us his teaching on goodness, his teaching on the path to goodness, his, his commandments, which are these gems, these lights to help us along the way to reach that goodness. May the Lord of all goodness and all wisdom, the Lord of the commandments and the Lord of our conscience, the Lord of our faith, guide you through his Holy Spirit into the fullness of goodness and light in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next time. And don't forget that Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. There's a plethora of them. Check them out. Next week, we'll be answering your questions. So stop in then. Uh, EWTN Bookmark, the one and only Raymond Arroyo, Turnabout Tales, the Mad Mischief of Tad Lincoln, another one of his children's books. Check that out. Also, we've got a Holy Mass in honor of Our Lady of Fatima, as we do every year, live from Our Lady Shrine in Portugal, Friday, October 13th, 5 a.m. Eastern, re-airing at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Check it all out at EW10.com for showtimes in your area and all the other Fatima-related programming. I'm Doug Keck. We'll see you next time right here in Father Spitzer's universe. Be well.